And before we jump into our weekend message, I get the privilege of letting you know about a major celebration that took place here at our Downs Road campus just about a week ago. Most of you know that multiplication, leadership development, and church planting is a major part of Northview's vision. Part of that is our Masters of Divinity, a fully accredited program where we have had students studying, preparing for ministry while immersed in local church work. A week ago Friday, our first four graduates, Sarah Friesen, Kendra Gerbrandt, Greg Harris, and John Mulder walked across the stage right here at Downs Road to receive their Masters of Divinity degree. It was a great celebration. These four have graduated, five new ones are coming in, so we currently have 12 students in this program. We are so excited and we would encourage you to pray with and for these students, get to know them. They will travel with us for three to four years on our various campuses. Part of that, which would be a great segue of what I wanted to say as well, is that many of them get to practice their preaching in our Sunday night services. And if you weren't aware of that, in addition to all of the other venues and times and places where we are meeting, we've got three venues here at Downs Road on Sunday night where you can come out and support these students as they preach from the same text that we're preaching on on the weekend, but it is our students as they develop in their leadership. So I want to encourage you to celebrate with these four if you know them, pass on your congratulations, and that you'd consider praying for and supporting these new students as we head into another year. Well, having said all that, I want to invite you to take your Bibles, turn to Genesis 3. We are carrying on in our spiritual warfare series. And I just want to make a little mention to you parents who have young children at home. Listen carefully. Uh, you know your kids. You know their sensitivities. And if there's something in any one of these weekends where you think maybe best to take the kids aside, we just give you that discretion as parents to listen with your kids in mind. But we are in Genesis chapter 3, and we're focusing in on the first conversation that we have when we meet this character named Satan. Now, I don't need to tell you this, but our world is awash in the supernatural. Uh, I did a, a quick search on Google, and uh, thanks to uh, Hollywood, let me just mention a few of these very popular shows that are out there these days. Avatar, The Avengers, over 20 years of The X-Files, Vampire Diaries, Twilight, Supernatural, Stranger Things, one of the most popular series of all times, the eight-part series of Harry Potter, the three-part trilogy, Lord of the Rings, three segments so far in the Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe the most provocative of all the titles in recent years are the last four years, 78 episodes of the miniseries Lucifer, based on the DC comic book by the same name. It's almost Hard to imagine that, that we're saying comic book and Lucifer in the same sentence, but it is true. And as much as we like to think that we live in this Western world as naturalists, that we are devoted to the scientific method of discovery, rational, secular-minded people, our culture continues to have a deep appetite for and a fascination with the spiritual, the paranormal, the supernatural. And from a biblical point of view, that shouldn't surprise us. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11, God is speaking, and it says he placed eternity in the hearts of humanity. He placed eternity on our hearts. In other words, it's as though God has stamped the very knowledge of something eternal, something other than the physical, into the very psyche, the soul of the human creature. 
C.S. Lewis is famous for having said a generation ago that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Many centuries earlier, St. Augustine in the third century, in his book Confessions, talking about God and his glory, says that you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So this fascination, this hunger for the spiritual shouldn't surprise us who have a biblical worldview. And what it all points to is that there is more to this life than what we see on the surface, that there is another very real dimension to life. Uh, the ancient Celtic civilizations, Ireland and Scotland, referred to times and places where they caught a glimpse of the other world. A glimpse behind the veil is how they talked about it. A glimpse into the eternal, into the spiritual, and they called these places thin places. Places where the presence of God, the Spirit of God, was so close, so tangible, so personal, so real. Places where heaven and earth almost touched thin places. And over the first six weeks of the fall, we are looking into that realm, the spiritual realm, particularly the dark side of that realm. We've anchored the series in Ephesians 6. Verses 10 to 20, it is one of the longest passages in the Bible dealing with the spiritual realm. First week and weeks 5 and 6 deal with that text specifically. In essence, it tells us that there is indeed a spiritual world and a spiritual battle. That we don't do battle with flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. And this passage, Ephesians 6, challenges us as children of the king that we would take our stand against the evil one. We're admonished that we would know his strategies, and we are also commanded to dress for battle, specifically the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes fit to run with the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the one offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit. And the final imperative in that text, Ephesians 6, is that we would do all of this in a spirit of prayer, of watchfulness and vigilance over our lives, that we would pray attentive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, that we would pray continually, pray for the saints, pray for the advance of the gospel, pray for boldness, for endurance, for courage, keep alert, persevere, pray. That is our anchor text. And in the weeks in between, we're looking at some other texts. And this weekend, it's Genesis 3. It's the first time that we bump into this character named Satan. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, just turn to them or follow along on the screen. We're going to read the first six verses of Genesis 3. And the text says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Now, there's more to the story, but we're just going to cut it off there and deal with those first six verses. And this message really is part two to Pastor Jeff's message last weekend, Know Your Enemy. Because if indeed we have a spiritual enemy, and the scriptures tell us we do, and if we are told to stand firm against him and to understand his schemes, which we are, then knowing our enemy and knowing his strategies is critical. We understand this in real life. We, we see it in war movies where recognizance missions are sent behind enemy lines to try to determine what the enemy armies are up to where technicians intercept enemy communications and try to decipher and decode those same messages. We know of it in real, everyday life. We live in a world where there is this uneasy tension that exists between the communist state and the democratic nation, where there is this mutual skepticism between the world's superpowers, even amongst those that we consider allies. And there is always this crazy dictator or two somewhere in the world that all of the world is sort of keeping an eye on to see what they are going to do next. We want to know what is happening behind the scenes. And Ephesians 6.11 says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul is talking in the context of forgiving one another, offering forgiveness to one another. And he says we do this in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. There is that same word. The implication is simply this. Our enemy is a schemer, but we have intel on his strategies. And so using Genesis 3 as our backdrop, I want to ask several questions. Who is this enemy? Where did he come from? Why does he hate us so? What are his strategies? Specifically, what was the tactic that he used with Eve? What was Eve's mistake? Where did she go wrong? And finally, what lessons can we take from this story into our own lives today? As we ask those questions, who is this enemy and where did he come from? Genesis 3 simply refers to the serpent. And someone might ask, well, why do you equate this snake with Satan? And the answer is simple, that the Bible tells us in several other locations that Satan is indeed this ancient serpent. Satan is a fallen angel who now opposes all that is good and right and true and beautiful. And we need to press pause for a moment. And just take some time to talk about angels and demons. Angels are created beings. They're heavenly beings created by God to do his bidding and to serve his people. Psalm 103 verse 20 says, Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Colossians 1, speaking of Jesus says, in him, in Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rules or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. God created everything, including the heavenly beings. 
including those that the scripture calls the heavenly hosts or the armies of heaven. And demons then are fallen angels. Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology says this, Demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. In other words, demons were once good. They were once angels, but they sinned and they lost their position of serving God. Now, Genesis 1.31, the end of the very first chapter, says that God's original creation was perfect and good. No sin, no evil, no rebellion. God looked at what he had created and said, it is good. So by implication, we can imply that even the spirit realm was good. But somewhere between Genesis 3, Genesis 1, rather, and Genesis 3, a rebellion in the angelic ranks takes place. There are two Old Testament texts that many scholars believe point to the fall of Satan. Both of these passages are laments or judgments that are written to an earthly king, the prince of Babylon and the prince of Tyre. But as is not uncommon in Hebrew literature, there's a double meaning. There's a double application. There is a personal present application, and there is an allusion to a greater story. There is a word for today, and there is a word for a future event. There is a word of prophecy concerning a person standing right in front of us, a word of rebuke to this leader, but also to the greater evil that stands behind this leader. In Ezekiel 28, it is written to the prince of Tyre, and it says, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. It is that phrase that tells us this is not just about an earthly king. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Isaiah 14 picks up that same theme, this written to the prince of Babylon. And it says, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. Just press pause there for a minute. That phrase, morning star, is a very interesting phrase. In fact, some of your translations may still use the phrase Lucifer because the sun, the star of the morning was named Lucifer. It's where we get that name. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I'll ascend to the heavens. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. You see, the language in those two texts is so over the top that it can't apply just to an earthly kingdom. It gives us a glimpse behind the veil. But perhaps the clearest explanation we have is in Revelation 12. And in Revelation 12, the apostle John is seeing visions and he sees this. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. There we have the connection to Genesis 3. The ancient serpent called Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. 
the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. He's filled with fury because his no, he knows that his time is short. It's this instant that Jesus must be referring to in Luke 10 when he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, somebody's going to ask, well, when did this happen? The truth is we don't know for sure precisely. And I'm not sure that we really need to know exactly when this happened. What we do know is that angels were created somewhere in that Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 narrative. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the earth. That the, the earth is formless and void. There is chaos. And then in Genesis 1 verse 3, he begins to speak order out of that chaos. What we know is that the angels were there in those original days of creation. And we know this because in Job 38, God is rebuking Job. And in essence, he says to them, hey, Job, were you there when I was creating the world? And then he makes this very interesting comment. The angels were. The angels were looking over my shoulder. The angels were singing with the morning stars. And they were shouting shouts of joy as I created. So what we know is that they were there in the beginning. In fact, every Christmas, when we sing the old Christmas carol, Angels from the Realms of Glory, we repeat this theme. Wing your flight o'er all the earth, ye who sang creation's story. Now proclaim Messiah's birth. They were there at creation. They were there at the birth of Jesus. Now, somewhere then, between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3 verse 1, that rebellion takes place. And you might be wondering then, well, why is it that Satan wars against us? What is it that he hates so much that he would want to destroy us? And the answer is actually quite simple. Satan was the first and the most ferocious enemy of God and God's kingdom rule. And because he lost that battle and was cast out of heaven and thrown to the earth, he has now set his sights on the children of the king. And because you were created in the image of God, because you bear the imago Dei, you were made in the likeness of the high king, that you, we, are hated by the one who hates the king. William Gurnell was a Puritan pastor back 400 years ago, the 1600s in the UK. He wrote what many regard as one of the definitive and exhaustive works on spiritual warfare. It's titled The Christian in Complete Armor. It has a 69-word subtitle, which I'm not going to take time to read. It is a 650-page book. It is tiny font and no pictures. In that book, Grinnell says this, It is the image of God reflected in you that so enrages hell. It is this at which the demons hurl their mightiest weapons. You see, in essence, what we hear is that if Satan can't take out the high king, and he can't, then he is determined to hinder God's image bearers, his children. What Satan hates is the image of God. 
He hates the likeness of God in you and in me. Gurnell says there are many seasons when Satan will attack. New converts often come under attack as he tries to steal away the seed of the gospel. Often when life is sending us trials, when we're already sick or tired or weary, the enemy will add his attack. When we attempt a good ministry, when we step out to do something for the glory of God, we often experience spiritual battle. There are many instances in the scripture where after a mountaintop experience, Satan comes in to attack. You think of Jonah and Elijah after great victories and the next day are in essence saying, God, why don't you just kill me? How many people do you know after a summer at Bible camp or after a weekend retreat or the spiritual high of a conference or coming home from a missions trip or a year at Bible school will face incredible spiritual battles in their lives? And finally, and most insidiously, Satan is so cruel, but often at the hour of death, even for many of the greatest saints, he comes to attack with doubts and fears as death looms. The common thread in all of these instances is this, deception, lies, innuendos, doubt, fear, accusation, condemnation. And if you boil it down to one common theme, it turns out that Satan is really a one-trick pony, that he is not that creative, that he has just one primary weapon, and it is called the lie. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. He cannot be trusted. He will twist the truth. He will shade the truth. He will cast the truth into doubt. John 8, which Pastor Jeff referred to last weekend. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he says, you're of your father, the devil. And when the devil speaks, he can't help himself but to lie because he is a liar. In fact, lying is his native language. It is his mother tongue. In Genesis 3, we hear the very first words out of Satan's lips, casting doubt on what God has said. He accuses God to Eve. He calls into question the promises and the character of God. Doubt his goodness. Doubt his plan. Doubt his word. Did God really say he's not the good guy that he claims to be? He's holding out on you, Eve. Now, we need to notice how in his question, he immediately misquotes God. He twists God's word from the very start. He says, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Which, of course, in fact, is not what God said at all. The opposite was true. The Lord said, you are free to eat from every tree in the garden except one. Satan, you can't eat from any tree. God says, no, eat from every tree but one. Eve answers him. And she gets the promises of God wrong on two fronts. First, she leaves out some of the deeper implications of what God said. She says, we may eat from the fruit of the trees. It's here where scholars help us. In pointing out the difference between what Eve says here and what God had said back in chapter 2, verse 16, I'm going to put up two or three translations for you to see the difference. The NIV, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. 
The ESV, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. The New American Standard, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. Free to eat. You may surely eat. You may eat freely. It's an emphatic infinitive. I have no clue what that means. Uh, scholars tell us what it means is that it is, it is continuously set in the active present. You continuously eat. You can feel free to get graze. It is the same word that is used elsewhere, translated as feasting. It's a powerful metaphor, a powerful word picture. You can eat to your heart's content. There is a banquet spread out for you in this garden. It is like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Everything you see in front of you is edible. And Eve's answer is a bland, meh. We can eat. It's not the abundant buffet table. We can feast. The Lord God has blessed us. He's given us abundance. Every tree we can eat to our heart's content. In other words, she lessens God's promise. She takes away from his word. The way she repeats it makes it less than it actually says. It loses its power. It loses its oomph instead of the buffet or instead of Baskin and Robbins 31 flavors. It's bland vanilla. But her next sentence, she does just the opposite. She adds to the word. She makes it say more than what God actually says. There's one tree that we can't eat from or even touch. Well, no, that's not what God said. If you look back in chapter two, he simply said, don't eat from that tree. But human nature, being what human nature is, seems to always want to add to God's word, to add to God's law. The scribes and Pharisees of the Jewish nation were famous for articulating the Old Testament law into 631 distinct rules and regulations. They came up with a rule for everything. If you refer simply to the law around keeping of the Sabbath, do no work and keep this day holy unto the Lord. They have a whole list of rules for what qualifies as work and what is not work. You want to go for a walk? Well, maybe walking is working. So you can walk one mile and that's not work. But if you walk more than a mile, that is work. We call this legalism. Adding more to the word than what the word actually says. We make additional rules and regulations for ourselves. Every generation has done this. And most often it's done out of a good heart, a good intent. We want to obey God's laws, so we add our own rules to make sure that we actually obey. And now that Satan has planted this thought in her mind, he has called God's nature into question. He's confused her thoughts. He has her misquoting God. Now he comes in for the kill. And now it is not just in innuendo, but it is a full frontal attack. God had made it crystal clear back in chapter 2 that when you rebel against me, when you eat from this one tree, death is going to enter creation. Death is going to enter our relationship. It will be broken. It will be fractured. A barrier will go up between us. A great chasm will open and divide us. Shame will enter. You'll start hiding from one another. In fact, you'll start hiding from God himself. 
And Satan doesn't even try to disguise his lie, but in a bold moment, he simply calls God a liar. And he says, you will not die. And so Eve looks at the fruit. It's pleasing to the eye. It's good for food. It offers her freedom, wisdom, power, self-actualization, self-determination, self-sufficiency. I will be the ruler of my own destiny. I gain wisdom and power and knowledge. In fact, God is holding out on me. He doesn't have my best in mind. I know better. She takes, she eats, and she gives some to her husband who is right there with her. And our world is plunged into darkness and into rebellion. That's our text. There is so much in this text for us to consider. But perhaps the two most critical themes are simply this, two sides of the same coin. The first is that the text illustrates Satan's primary weapon, and it is the weapon of the lie. That he comes deceiving and lying and accusing, raising doubts, raising his eyebrows and casting innuendos. He calls into question the character of God, the word of God, the promise of God the trustworthiness of God, the purpose of God, the goodness of God. Did God really say? The second critical theme is how we answer the liar. What was Eve's mistake? Well, some would say her first mistake was getting involved in the conversation to begin with, that she should have walked away. She should have never started listening. But once she was engaged, she's knocked off balance for one key reason. She does not rightly apply the word of God. And as we've already illustrated, she uses the word, she quotes the Father, but not with accuracy, not with precision, not with power. She takes away some of its full meaning in one instance, and in the second instance, she adds more to it. And it is why reading and studying and meditating and rightly applying the Word of God is so critical to our lives today. It is why I believe that one of Satan's greatest tactics is to keep us away from this book. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, do your, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the Word of Truth. That little phrase, correctly handles, is actually a medical term. It's like a doctor with a patient. When the doctor prescribes the right drug at the right dosage at the right time, and you take that prescription to the pharmacist, and you trust that that pharmacist will also dispense the right drug, the right dose for this right time. You see, there are two equal but opposite sides to this conversation. We could spend a lot of time asking how well do we know our enemy? How well we do, do we know his strategies, his tactics, his schemes? But the second and the more important question is how well do we know our God? How well do we know his promises and his word? Have we mined the depths and the riches 
the abundance of his word? Have we taken it to heart? Have we meditated on it? Have we put these promises of God into practice in our lives? How do you answer a liar? You answer him with the truth. And my friends, if there was ever a time where we needed to be students of the word and people of prayer, that must be today. Our culture, I don't need to tell you this, our culture seems to be coming apart at the seams. There's this haunting prophecy. The Old Testament book of Amos, given to the rebellious nation of Israel, but I think it equally applies to us today. In Amos 8, he says, The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord. When I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. You see, if our nation is to be turned to the Lord, it must begin with the house of God. It must begin with the people of God. We must be people of the book, people of prayer, and people of action. Centered on the cross of Jesus, the Spirit of God infusing us with courage, clothed in the armor given to us by God himself that has just one offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I remember a chorus that we used to sing back in the olden days based on Psalm 149, verse 6, with the high praises of God in our mouth and a two-edged sword in our hand, we mount our assault on the portals of hell and against us. They cannot stand singing praise, praise, praise to our God. We've got to remind ourselves that there is more to this story than Genesis 3. The New Testament tells us that because of Adam's rebellion that we are all born into sin. But the New Testament also tells us of another perfect man who walked the earth. A man named Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who was tempted and tried with the very same strategy. Satan twisting the words of God after his baptism when God had said, You are my beloved son. And Satan saying to him, if you are indeed the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Bow down to me and I'll give you all authority. And every temptation of Jesus is met in the very same way. Jesus repeats back to the enemy the words of God. The promises of God. He recounts the goodness and character and trustworthiness of God. It is written, Jesus says. He perfectly obeyed where you and I have not obeyed. He met every accusation of the enemy with the living word of God. And he then offers his perfect record, his perfect life, his righteousness in place of our failure and sin. And the first Adam gets it wrong. We're all in trouble. The second Adam provides the way out. And that macro story is what we cling to. It's our ultimate hope and trust. It's our joy and anticipation. But let me ask you as we close. Has the enemy been harassing you in this season of your life? 
What promises of the Father is the enemy trying to steal away from you? Is he whispering? God is not good. God is not loving. God doesn't care for you. God's forgotten you. God's not powerful enough. He's cold. He's distant. You see, in the end, the battle for victory over our enemy is a battle for our minds. And it is why we are exhorted over and over and over again. Set your mind on things above. Saturate your mind with the word of God. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Russell Moore, in a great little book, Tempted and Tried, says this, We overcome the same way Jesus did, by trusting in our Father and hearing his voice. So when the enemy whispers lies, we shout back the truth. When the enemy comes accusing, we remind him of whom we belong to. When the enemy brings up your past, you remind him of his future. When the enemy twists the word of God, we quote it back to him correctly. So strap on the armor of God. Pick up your sword, the word of God, and take your stand against the schemes of the devil. Let me pray with you and for you. So Lord God, we come before you as a congregation spread literally across this country, but in many locations, some sitting at home, some sitting in our worship centers. But Father, we come together in this moment and we are asking that you would strengthen us by your word and by your spirit. Lord, we declare that you are the mighty God. You are the sovereign ruler over our lives, that your name is to be hallowed and holy and lifted up, that we are to make much of you and your sovereign rule. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our lives and in our nation. Lord, we pray that you would provide for us everything that we need. We pray for those who are sick these days. We pray for those who have spiritual needs. We pray for those who have financial needs. Lord, that you would be the one who gives us our daily bread. Lord, we pray for forgiveness. We pray that as we forgive one another, we would do so as you have first forgiven us, that we would offer this gift of forgiveness so that Satan would not take us captive. Father, we ask that you would protect us from the schemes of the evil one. And so, Lord, I pray for the men and women, the boys and girls who are listening to this message. May we be aware, may we be alert, may we be watchful, as your word says, of the schemes of the enemy. But may we not live in fear. May we live in the victory and in the triumph that we have in the finished work of Christ. And may we answer this liar with the word of truth, the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, which is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. For our great joy, for our good, and for your glory, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.